The Standard Deviations podcast is a weekly production that looks at money, mind, and meaning, all through a psychological lens. Each week, psychologist and New York Times bestselling author Dr. Daniel Crosby interviews a fascinating new guest, experts in everything from finance to literature to wellness. Support for Standard Deviations and the following message comes from The Guardian Network a national community of preferred financial representatives and agencies dedicated to helping Americans live with greater financial confidence through a collaborative planning approach. Have you thought about what the cash for that Insta-worthy burger or latte you ordered out this week might buy you tomorrow? The Guardian Network created this cool, useful digital experience that can help you to see how your spending today lines up with your priorities. Play the cash stash dash at livingconfidently.com forward slash Cash Dash. Welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Daniel Crosby. Uh, I am joined today in what is an absolute first for the podcast by a guest right here in the studio, by which I mean my basement. So I am joined here today by uh, Brian Ford. He is a financial well-being executive at Momentum On Up through SunTrust. He's the author of two books, Marshmallows and Bikes, Teaching Children Personal Finance, uh, as well as the eight pillars of financial greatness. Welcome, Brian. Yeah, thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah, I had to clean up a lot of Legos uh, to to make this place even remotely presentable. So thank you for being here uh, in the quote unquote studio today. Uh, so you and I have a couple of things in common. We've both written children's books. So the name of your children's book is Marshmallows and Bikes: Teaching Children Personal Finance. And it draws on a famous psychological study. So, Brian, what was the impetus to write a kid's book? And tell us a bit about the inspiration for it. Yeah, well, look, I read your children's book to my children, and it scared them. (laughs) I'm not kidding. No, it was good. It it, it provided a good uh, teaching moment. But the impetus for, for my children's book is I've got four children. And I think uh, part of it was out of love. And part of it was out of self-interest. So I love my kids, but I also know how much it costs if you have a financially illiterate child and what that will mean for you uh, and your bottom line, I think, in the, in the years to come. And so I really just wanted my kids to understand money and finance. And it was funny how it happened. I wasn't planning on writing a children's book. Um, I had just read the Marshmallow Study, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners are familiar with. It was done by Stanford many years ago around the idea of can a child wait to receive a marshmallow, as we all know, and, and, and what that showed uh, as far as delayed gratification and how that means greater happiness in life. I just read that study, and so it was on my mind, and uh, woke up in the middle of the night and said, I'm going to write a children's book. Got up, wrote it in like two hours. My wife woke up, didn't even know I was up all night, and I said, I wrote a children's book, and she <laughs> laughed. She thought I was kidding, Yeah, and then it kind of went from there, uh, but it was a lot of fun. Um, have you done the marshmallow study with your kids? Have you tested your kids to do the marshmallow study? Absolutely. Oh, how yeah. Do, how do they fit me? Look, I've got, uh, I've got four, and I'd say they're split down the middle. I've got two kind of savers and two not so much, uh, and, and so two can delay gratification very naturally and two cannot. Um, but I think that's the point of the study is that some are naturally inclined to delaying gratification and being able to save, and some are not. Uh, but the good news is, is that the children that are not can be taught with just a little bit of coaching and learning. And that's the beauty of, of teaching kids. We know that nature versus nurture. And uh, 
Um, and the good news is I think all my children are getting better at that. And it's something that we all have to work on. I mean, as adults, we have to work on that, but, uh, but it, it's been a lot of fun. Did the game. We continue to do it. They all get it. Uh, so I don't know if my kids are even real life children with how much stuff I put them through. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I did the marshmallow study on both of my children. I knew my daughter was going to crush it. I knew my oldest daughter would be, uh, would do great. She did came back after whatever it was, 15 minutes, I believe. And she was ready for double or nothing. I mean, she was ready, <laughs> she was ready to put it all on the line. I think my son was a little more tempted. I gave him no chance. He actually made it. So I didn't, I didn't think highly enough of my son. So we've only got one more kid. Uh, don't screw it up, Lola. We're going to get, you know, get you in here in a couple of years. Um, so a little bit of self-interest, uh, a little bit of wanting to help the world. And, and I like what you said that this all, isn't all innate, right? It's not like you're, you're born one way and you're, you're destined to either be financially hopeless or, or financially hopeful. So uh, another big part of your work is coming up with these pillars, uh, these eight pillars of best financial wellness practices. You built a business around this that you uh, sold to SunTrust a few years back. And I, I wanted to take a minute today for those of us that are, are want to eat the marshmallow, uh, to talk about these eight pillars and see how we can learn some of the things that you're teaching your kids. So what is the first of these eight pillars? Yeah, one thing I would say before I even get into pillar one is the foundation of all the pillars is we ask people to truly understand what they value. In other words, what's most important to them in life. And that's really critical. Um, and when I ask this to tens of thousands of people, as I speak across the country, I hear things like family, health, spirituality, travel. There is no right or wrong answer. It's just, what do you care about in life? And, and that's the foundation of the eight pillars, uh, because we're really trying to help people understand that their money needs to be in harmony with the things they care most about in life. And that's okay if it's a Corvette, but let's get clear about that. But if it's your family, let's make sure that your hard earned money's being, uh, uh, you know, funnel towards those things. And so that's really the foundation. And I think that's what makes the eight pillars unique, but getting right into it, pillar one is just establishing a financial confidence account. And that's just a fancy way for saying an emergency account. Some people are like, why doesn't you just call it an emergency account? And, and, uh, and I'm like, well, it's kind of a, a boring name, but, uh, <laughs> besides the fact that it's not just a differentiation between boring, um, we find that when you have one of these accounts, and it's fully funded, and it's in the right place, a tremendous amount of confidence will come into our lives, regardless of if an emergency ever happens to us in the future. So why not call it what it is? Uh, it, it provides confidence, uh, not only to us, but to our relationships. And so really, it's about how much do you need? And, and look, it's nothing fancy. Um, the eight pillars are not new and revolutionary. They're all research-based. Um, but, you know, we go for uh, three months of living expenses, and that varies depending on your income and, and what your expenses are. Um, but that's essentially pillar one. It's kind of that foundation. Yeah. So let me circle back to the, the meaning piece, because I think that's so important. So my favorite book of all time, one that I plug endlessly on this podcast, is a book called Man's Search for Meaning. And throughout Victor Man's Search Frankel. for... Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so doc, Dr. Victor Frankl is... is channeling Nietzsche throughout the book saying he who has a why to live can bear with almost any how. So I love that. You know, first things first, you've got to put that meaning uh, right up top. 
because volatility happens, uncertainty happens, unemployment happens. But if you have that why, you can deal with any how that comes to you along the way. Uh, and in terms of the financial competence account, uh, there, there's such a gift to knowing that you're going to be okay in the short term, right? Knowing that uh, whatever happens, whatever life throws at me, we're going to be okay for these three months. So I think that's a, a powerful concept. Uh, so the second pillar is organize and automate your financial life. And this is a pillar uh, that a behavioral financier can really love because one of the, the top principles of behavioral finance is to make it easy. And I think that automation makes it easy. Richard Thaler, who uh, got a Nobel Prize recently, he basically got a Nobel Prize for telling people to automate their investing. And it's this simple idea that has saved American investors hundreds of billions of dollars. So talk a bit about organization and automation. Yeah, you know, every once in a while, someone will ask me, you know, Brian, you wrote the book, The Eight Pillars are kind of your brainchild, which they're not, they're research-based, but they, they ask me, well, what's your favorite pillar? And uh, I always let them know that that's pillar two. And then they kind of stare at me and it kind of freaks them out and it's kind of like a red flag. And I don't, I don't blame <laughs> them for thinking that way. It is kind of the nerdy pillar. So I, I, I don't, I'm not surprised that you gravitate towards pillar two because yeah. you're a nerd. Yeah. You've got glasses, Dude, you know, big glasses. Yeah. This time too. <laughs> <laughs> so I love pillar two organize and automate. I mean, the organization, you don't have to be super nerdy and have files for everything. You just need to know what's going on. The research shows that when you understand what's going on within your finances, you're just happier with your finances and subsequently happier in life. And then the automation is critical. I always let people know that every financial principle that they learn, they should ask themselves, can I automate this? And if they can, they should. And I usually kind of then kind of hint at pillar one, which we just discussed. And I say, hey, can you automate pillar one? Can you automate creating that? that confidence account. And they think, and they say, yeah, absolutely. And I say, yeah, you can do that as well as the way you track your expenses, the way you pay your bills, certainly the way you save and invest for retirement and your children's college education. Uh, so a huge fan of automation. I meet people all the time um, that say, look, Brian, I just, I'm not a saver. I just wasn't born that way. Kind of talking about the children, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and what we're born with and what we're not. And they say, look, you can look at my expenses and what I'm doing. I'm not just spending rec recklessly and so forth. I'm living fairly within my means, but I just can't save. And what I find is that every great saver, whether they were born that way or learned that way, they do two things. Um, they save first and they make it automatic. Um, and that, you know, I've seen people go from terrible savers, I can't save a dime, to rock star savers overnight by just applying those two very simple principles. So huge fan of automation. The other thing I'll say about automation is sometimes we like to compare our physical wellness to our financial wellness. That's popular. Mm. Um, and while I agree to a certain extent, I think the analogy kind of breaks down because I let people know, look, man, if, if I could automate eating healthy and exercising, oh my gosh, my wife would love me so much more <laughs> than she currently does. Um, but you can automate almost everything that's really critical in finance, which I absolutely love. Um, and that's why I think living financially well is, is easier than even physically. Yeah. Uh, because of that automation factor. I love it. I'm a huge fan. 
I've been saying it for a while. I'm not sure why I didn't get the Nobel, but that's all right. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I'm with you. Uh, organize and automate. Well, the cool thing, like you said, you analogized it to exercise, but it's effectively, you have to make the right decision once. Like you have to decide to go to the gym one time. And for the rest of your life, you can be Mr. Olympia if you decide one time to go to the gym. And that's what's so cool about automation. You know, all of the research around human willpower shows that it's uh, not nearly as strong as we think it is. And that if we're exercising it in one place, it tends to get used up in another place. So, you know, people who are on a diet have a harder time saving, things like this. So by automating, you don't require yourself to make the good decision again and again and again, using that, that willpower, you just set, set it and forget it. Uh, it's one of the toughest things about being an entrepreneur is having to write checks uh, of variable sizes uh, to the government every every quarter. <laughs> I find it's not automated, so you have to really think about it. Well, just to break <laughs> in right there, I do let people know. I, I you know, it's interesting. You you, you talk about taxes, and I, I let the, I ask the question: How does the government get our money? <laughs> you know, are they calling you at the end of the month, and they're like, "Hey." Got some roads to build. <laughs> yeah. Got a country please. to defend. <laughs> what do you think about? Like it's first, it's automatic. They yeah. get that principle. We can apply the same thing in our in our own lives. Uh, so yeah. <laughs> yeah. Get money the way the US government gets money. On time and automated. I love it. Okay. So the next pillar is to break free of debt and build your credit score. So I have to tell a, a, a short story here. So I grew up in a household. My dad was a financial advisor. And in our household, debt was a four-letter word. Like we, I, I'm, I, that's not a euphemism. My dad would not let us say the word debt because he was so angry about debt. And so I didn't get a credit card until I was in my mid-30s. And then we went to buy a house and I had no credit score. We had to put a 50% down payment on our home because I had no credit score. I had a great income, uh, but I had no credit score at all. And so I've, I think, moderated the, the stance on debt relative to how I grew up. Like it's important, but it can also be dangerous. So how do you walk that line and how do you think about this pillar? Oh, it's a great story that I think illustrates uh, two extremes that uh, we need to be careful of. I think moderation is important here. Um, uh, you know, I agree. I, I think some people think of debt as, you know, bad. Um, I think of it as a tool. Um, generally speaking, I'm not a fan of consumer debt. Yeah. So as I start to bucket the types of debt and what's acceptable and what's not, it's very clear. I let, uh, you know, the way my family kind of does this is a reasonable auto loan, a reasonable mortgage, a reasonable student loan and potentially a reasonable business loan, uh, and I'll explain what reasonable means in just a minute, uh, makes sense. Everything outside of that in our household, unacceptable. Uh, it's contrary to building wealth. It's like oil and water. They don't mix. Um, but yeah, I think, I think you know, your story illustrates a good point, which is uh, moderation in all things. Uh, people ask me, can a credit card help you build your credit score? Absolutely. Um, do we need to be careful? Absolutely. Uh, we need to learn the game and play the game well. And uh, certainly the research shows that people that are happy with their money, that are financially confident, they pay attention to their credit score. 
is your credit score this all important, wonderful, amazing number? No, I think we need to be careful of, of giving it too much credence. Does a high credit score equal high financial well being? Not always. So we need to be careful. It's that balance between using debt for things that we probably could pay for anyways, building that score, uh, and then being able to get the best rates and the best terms possible when we do need to go get debt for a mortgage or something that's reasonable. Um, so I mentioned reasonable when I said mortgage and auto loan. Look, I've, I've you know, been teaching high school teachers and they're like, hey, you said an auto loan is okay. And then we'll walk out, you know, in the parking lot chatting after my, you know, speech and I'll see that they're driving a BMW and they make 40 grand a year. And the, the vehicle's like a $40,000 vehicle. Right. And I'm like, what, what <laughs> part of my talk did you not get? Like, yeah. so reasonable means relative to our income. We need to be careful. Um, pillar three is interesting. I don't, I actually call pillar three, the, the proper name of pillar three is break your financial bonds and barriers. Mm. So it's the idea that there are things that can bring us closer to financial greatness and financial wellness. And then there are some things that can trip us up. And of all the things that can trip you up, it's not debt. It's not a poor credit score. Although we talk about those things in pillar three, the number one barrier to reaching financial greatness is actually lack of knowledge. Um, people who are wallowing around in financial meagerness, they don't know what they don't know. And financial ignorance does not lead to bliss. Uh, and then we go on to talking about being careful with debt and then making sure that your credit score uh, is in a good place. So that, that's in essence, pillar three. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. It's uh, another thing that I've, I've found firsthand is that when you go to do one of these, how much home can I afford calculators? There's often a perverse incentive because they're, you know, sponsored by realtor.com or something. Sure. And they'll tell you, you can afford what is in my opinion, so much more home, more home than you than you actually should afford. So anyway, best to be wary about these things and make sure they're a function of of how much you make, right? Uh, the next one's interesting and topical. It says to create a proper insurance and estate plan. We've seen high profile people, Aretha Franklin, Prince, uh, and others die without a will, die without an estate plan. Recently, uh, talk a bit, of, if you will, about how important this is and, and does it apply to everyone? If you don't have Prince money, uh, do you <laughs> still need do you still need an estate plan? Yeah, uh, pillar four. The actual name of it is "Take care of what if," and I just asked the question. You know, what if you know I were to get into a car accident on the way home from recording this podcast? What if you know our home were to get broken into or damaged by a natural disaster? You know, it, for those of us who have children, what if we were to pass away this weekend? You know, these are not fun questions to think about. But people who are financially confident, they, they take these questions head on and they prepare for them financially speaking. And the way to do that is through insurance and estate planning. I will mention that pillar four is my least favorite pillar. It's one of those that shows research wise that it's important, um, but I don't get super excited about talking about it. Uh, it's not my area of expertise, but it's the idea that we need to be properly insured, but not overinsured. Uh, and that we need an estate plan. And you kind of asked the question, does everyone need one? And I'd say, yes, look, it's, uh, you've worked hard for your money, no matter what amount that is. And a simple estate plan, maybe that's just a, a will, um, is just saying, look, I want my money and my things to go here and here when I pass away. And I think, especially when it comes to your things, a lot of people think, well, I don't have a lot of money. 
your things mean a lot to those who you love and making sure they go to the right people, I think is a nice, a nice thing. And, and it's not as difficult as people may think. I think, you know, every state is a little different on what constitutes a, a will that will hold up in court, but it's very easy to find out what that is. Yeah. And in some states, it's as simple as a scratch paper with your signature on it. Yeah. So find out for your particular state, get those things down, uh, work with a good insurance agent. Look, I, I don't fix my own car because that's not my area of expertise. Same thing. I've got a great insurance agent um, that helps me know what I need and what I don't and make sure I'm not overinsured and I'm covering those things that I care most about. And, and it goes back to the, the beginning, which we talked about, which was the values, the things we care most about in life. When it comes to insurance, just think about the things that matter most to you and make sure you're covered uh, if something were to happen either to your income or to your life and so forth. So uh, it's one of those that we just can get done, move on, uh, and and feel good about it and breathe easy. Yeah, I've seen a, a failure to prepare for what if really tear families apart. And especially, you know, you talk about the things I have witnessed friends and clients tearing their families apart over who gets grandma's, you know, comic book collection or something. I mean, it's just, yep. it's just <laughs> grandma's comic book collection. That's an evocative image. But yeah, uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's crazy. So we need to prepare to maintain those relationships uh, after we're gone and planning for what if is a b- big part of this. Now, here's my favorite. Here's my favorite pillar. You know it. Invest for happiness. So talk to us about investing for happiness. Yeah, pillar five is investing for happiness now and in the future. I call it invest for happiness because I find that a lot of people are investing for a return. We get that. That's we we want that. Everyone wants a return, and a higher return is better than a lower return. But I want to focus people on investing for a purpose. Um, and what I mean by that is, is what are you going to do with that return and that capital? Um, focus on the fact that you want to slow down one day. Uh, and maybe even stop working. Focus on the fact that you want your children to go to, to college and, and what that would mean and how much it will cost. So I always like investing uh, for a reason and keeping that in mind. Uh, the reason for that is, is it helps us make better investing decisions. You and I have talked about this yes. uh, before. In fact, I remember the first time I came to your home, you invited me over for dinner. I kind of did a little background on who you were and who you are. And I was like, oh man, this guy's he knows a lot about investing. It'll be interesting to see what he thinks. And you simply asked me, you know, what are, what's your philosophy on investing? Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, it's super boring. And it's really simple. I'm a let's look long-term type of guy. I'm all about diversification. I'm about dollar cost averaging. I use taxed advantage retirement vehicles where it makes sense. And I was like, and that's it. And I thought you'd be like, man, this guy's so boring and he's not very smart. And you were like, oh my gosh. I like have no one ever says that. Everyone tries to impress me with their next greatest investing tip or 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 what they do to have this phenomenal portfolio. Um, but look, I'm not that smart. Uh, I like to keep things simple. Um, and as much as I like investing, I only like investing as much as it gets me to things that I care about in life. Yeah, and and that's that purpose. That's that uh, wanting to slow down and my kids' college education and so forth. So I'm a I'm a simple guy when it comes to investing. Well, simple is the way to go. I assign many of my books, keep it simple, right? You know, there's, there's this, you know, there's this great pressure when you're signing a book to, to write something personal and witty and it, it's so debilitating for me. So I've, I've taken my own advice and just come to write, keep it simple because that's, uh, that's the way to go. A- another form of knowledge is what's called meta knowledge, which is basically knowing what you don't know. 
And I think when it comes to investing, what you don't know uh, for most of us is, is just about anything, right? I mean, if you know what's going to happen with a given security, uh, you can go to jail for trading it. So I think, <laughs> you know, I think knowing what you don't know, diversifying, keeping your fees in check, doing all these things is, is really the way to go. There's a, there's a study that I share whenever uh, I feel like it's appropriate that I cited in Personal Benchmark, and it was a study about low-income savers who were asked to look at a picture of their children before they made an investment decision or a saving or a spending decision. And when they did, they saved 250% more uh, than a control group. So just something simple like focusing on that why, investing for happiness, having that, that little carrot, that why out in front of you will help you make much, much better investment decisions. I can't, can't uh, agree enough with, with this pillar. So the next one is to make your home central to your money matters. So I, uh, a friend of mine uh, tweeted out the other day that some of the best investment advice you can get is to not get divorced. And uh, <laughs> I understand that, look, I'm gonna get hate mail for that. I know there are plenty of reasons why some people need to get divorced, but it makes an interesting point that, you know, keeping your home in a good place is one of the best things you can do for your finances. Yeah, look, I'm gonna stay away from the nasty tweets that you're gonna get. Uh, <laughs> this pillar is not about marriage. Oh, well. It, it is about your home, like well, your, literally. Your, your like, little home. Oh, like the gosh. actual house. Oh God, I got nasty hate mail for nothing then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'm staying away from that. Um, I will say I, I've been married for 18 years. Uh, and, and while it's fantastic, there's nothing easy about marriage, but that's kind of a metaphor for life. I think anything that is worthwhile is not easy and marriage is one of those uh, things. But having said that, uh, yeah, this is all about your home. This is about should you rent or should you buy? Um, how much should you put down? What type of mortgage should you use? If you do own a home or an apartment or a condo, you know, when does it make sense to refinance? Those are the things we tackle in pillar six. And uh, the first thing I, I want to say is that you know, I want to debunk the myth that renting is bad. Look, the research is clear that owning a home, owning real estate is in correlation with building wealth. So that's a good thing. We want to work towards that. But there are people that are not ready for home ownership. And sometimes we jump into home ownership um, a little earlier, premature. Make sure you do have, you know, enough to put down. Make sure you're getting a mortgage that makes sense for you. Um, Again, I'm a little conservative by nature, so I think putting more down is a good thing. Um, I think a, a simple 30-year fixed mortgage is a good thing. Um, I'd say one of the biggest things uh, in Pillar 6, takeaway for your readers, um, is something I call the 30% rule. Make sure your total housing costs, whether you rent or own, that includes utilities, home maintenance, yeah. homeowners association fees, all that stuff. Make sure that all that is 30% or less than your take-home pay. That's a big one, by the way. Uh, you can live a lot of the other principles in the eight pillars and get this one wrong, and it can really be painful. In fact, a lot of people have shown me kind of their net worth, and we've looked at it, and they've said, I just don't understand why I'm paycheck to paycheck, and I'm in a bunch of debt. I'm living the eight pillars, and they, they are for the most part, but they're just way out of whack on the 30% rule. 
uh, and their house poor and they're struggling. Yeah. Every, um, so that's a big one for me. Everyone in San Francisco and Manhattan is just laugh crying as they listen to this. <laughs> yeah. We're, well, look, I grew up in LA. <laughs> right. My sister lives in Manhattan Beach, California. Right. I worked in New York for a long time, owned an apartment there, lived in London for a couple of years. So right. I get it. Uh, but that's why they're rules of thumb. Yeah, sure. You know, you want to do the best that you can. But I still don't think we use that as an excuse. Yeah. I think you can still do some things in those markets that have, uh, you know, high real estate to, to keep in check. Now, there's, there's higher average incomes in those cities sure. as well. So yes. if you're making below the average income in those cities and your home is above <laughs> average, look, I'm still going to say that's not as wise as we probably could be. There's a couple of behavioral considerations that I think warrant mentioning when we talk about uh, housing as well. So uh, Robert Schiller from Yale, uh, another Nobel Prize winner, looked at uh, at how houses have done historically versus how people think they do. And, and one of the things that he found is that people fall prey to what's called the money illusion. They, they fail to account for purchasing power. They fail to account uh, for inflation. And they think about uh, the money in nominal terms and not in purchasing power terms. So we know that grandma bought her house uh, in 1950 in Washington, D.C. for, for a mere $100,000. And now grandma's house is worth $600,000. Like, wow, what an awesome return. She's 6x her money. Well, if grandma had taken that hundred grand and put it in the S&P 500, 60 years ago, she wouldn't have $2 million or whatever. We don't, we don't realize what that hundred grand bought back when grandma bought it. So he found that housing has kept up with inflation and that owning a house is sort of a good forced savings plan. So it's a great way to force yourself to save money. It's a great way to force yourself to build equity. But he also found that people think that their homes should be appreciating at double digits uh, each year. And that is simply not the case. So buy a house because it's a good way. Uh, you need somewhere to live. It's a good way to force you to save money. But it's not, on average, going to be this double-digit eye-popping thing that's going to get you big returns. So turn off the HGTV flip show and, and put those dreams aside, perhaps, while, while you think about this pillar. Um, the next pillar, uh, I think, is probably, as I look through these, the, the most ignored, right? We talk about, in the financial services world, we talk about all kinds of capital, but I think we often ignore human capital and, and the degree to which uh, educating ourselves, putting ourselves in a place to maximize our lifetime earning is one of the most powerful things that you can do. Yeah, pillar seven. Uh, I just call it maximize your money making machine. It's kind Whoa. of got a yeah, that's fancy, right? Alliteration. I like it. Woo! Um, and, and I let people know. Look, fancy name, not that fancy of stuff. Yeah, it's research based. This is not the get rich quick stuff. This is that we studied a bunch of people who grew their income over time and wrote about it stuff. Um, and, and we ask people, what's your number one income earning asset? And in good markets, people are like my 401k or my house. Yeah. And, but we all know that, that you, you are your number one income earning asset. You are your money-making machine. If that's true, we just need to simply fine tune that machine. We need to invest in that machine. You know, if you're doing and thinking the same things you were five to 10 years ago, there may be a good chance you're making the same amount of money. Yeah. Um, and, and so we bring up the idea of IQ versus VQ. 
And in fact, I ask the question when I'm in front of folks, I, I ask people, you know, does it help to be smart to make more money? And people are looking at me like, man, this is a tough one. And <laughs> like, they're confused and their heads are kind of going back and forth. Like, is this a trick question? I'm like, guys, this is not a trick question. Yeah. Like smart people, they make more money than dumb people. Right. <laughs> but the reason why it sounds like a trick question is it's not as important as a lot of people think. So we don't spend a lot of time talking about IQ in Pillar 7. Instead, we talk about VQ. VQ simply stands for value quotient. How much value do you bring to the marketplace? How much value do you bring to your current employer or to your customers? Um, and we, we said, okay, VQ, value. If that's correlated with income, then the next question is, how do you grow your VQ? How do I get a higher VQ and subsequently a higher income? And the four things that drive your VQ more than anything, one is continuing education. Number two is networking and mentorships. Number three is career development. And number four is leadership training. Mm. So those four things. So going back to continuing, continuing education, that's both formal and informal. Degrees are nice, but keep reading, keep listening to podcasts, you know, those types of things. Um, networking and mentorships, it's uh, not how many people you're linked with on LinkedIn. It's the quality of those uh, connections. Would those folks pick up the phone if you called them? Um, how well do they know you? Um, and so forth. So make good offline uh, connections with your online connections yeah. uh, and grow those relationships. Career development is this massive world. We could talk about that a lot, but what we found in career development is there's one thing that matters more than others. And I found this fascinating. People who really understand career development and climb the corporate ladder, they think like an owner. Mm. They just come to work with that mindset. If they owned the place, how would they act? And they go to work acting that way, even if they don't. Uh, and it's amazing when you, when you act like you're an owner or you're an executive over time consistently how doors are opened. And then the last one is, is the most important, which is leadership. We find that in whatever discipline, whether you're in the military or education or business, leaders make more than others. And it's simple. If you come to work, work hard, produce good results, that's worth something to a company. But when you can do that for yourself and like five other dudes, by the way, I dudes is like um, gender neutral. Yeah, gender neutral. In <laughs> fact, when I got married, you know, I grew up in Southern California. For those of you listening, and uh, you know, I grew up ten minutes from from Malibu. Um, grew up surfing, and when when I first got married, my wife's like, "You got to stop calling me dude." <laughs> and I was like, "Nope." <laughs> and to this day, yeah, like eighteen years later, yeah, I'm, I'm like, yeah. "Hey, what's going on, dude?" Yeah. Um, so certainly. Um, yeah, when, when you can do that for yourself, but you can do that for a bunch of other folks at work, that's worth even more money. Yeah. And you'll be compensated greater for that. Look, I love Pillar 7. It's something that I'm passionate about. I, I think in my next life, um, if I have something to focus in on, it's probably going to be this. It's, it's a great topic. It just comes down to investing in yourself. And by the very fact that you're listening to this podcast, like way to go. Yeah. You get Pillar 7. Yeah. That's what it's all about. It's just growing your VQ in small ways day in and day out. It's nothing massive or grand. It, it's just day in and day out being curious, learning and being better, you know, than you were yesterday. Well, I love the, So my, my favorite thing about investing is the way that money compounds. Like this is again, like the, the eighth wonder of the world to me, how money makes more money. And, and I find the same thing is true with knowledge and career development too. As you're able to learn more uh, connections, beget other connections and knowledge compounds 
Uh, growth compounds just as surely as, as financial capital does. And I think it's a, a very powerful lesson. So the final pillar is, to, uh, is all about giving, right? As a psychologist, I love this. Uh, the research on happiness and money is pretty unequivocal that the two ways that we can uh, make ourselves happiest with money are to spend it on time with people we love and to give it away. So these are sort of what we find uh, again and again. Uh, and yet, I also know there's some truth to putting your own oxygen mask on first. I know that some advisors uh, sort of suggest that their clients meet, uh, meet sort of a minimum threshold before they start giving charitably. How do you think about this pillar? Yeah, I would disagree with needing your net worth or your investable assets to be at a certain level. I remember when my wife and I were in college, broke, no gas in the tank piece of crap car, my wife's riding a bike. I was driving, I don't know what that says about me. Anyways, we were broke. <laughs> um, and we found ways to give back and it's not always about money. Uh, sometimes it's a genuine compliment. Um, sometimes it's a listening ear, but sometimes it's 10 bucks. Yeah. And I've found that those things feel as good as writing out a larger check. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I think there's something to be said about being careful with your finances and not giving to a point to where it hurts you. Uh, so I do believe that you need to take care of your own retirement before you start really plowing tons of money into your kid's college education. So I think balance is important and I'm not talking about giving on a massive scale. Um, I'm talking about the little things here and there. Um, but I think we can start right now. Um, it just feels so good. It makes me happy. I don't do it as much as I should. I'm certainly guilty of, of being selfish more often than not. Um, but I think it's sometimes the little things that we overlook that can make a difference in people's lives. Um, you know, I mentioned that the pillars are research-based. They're, they're not just my best ideas. And, and you talked about the research of giving. And uh, it's, it's fascinating. This is not just a touchy-feely pillar. It's not about just feeling good. The research shows that people who are happy with their money and on the road towards financial confidence or financial greatness, they're givers to a certain extent. Yeah. That doesn't always make sense, especially for us that are math-based. Like mm -hmm. how does giving something away equal more? That's like yeah. illogical. Um, but uh, the research behind it is quite fascinating. If you're a giver, you're less likely to make mistakes with your money mm -hmm. because you're not looking for that home run. Right you realize that a decent return is just fine. You know, if you're a giver, you're less likely to be up at three in the morning watching some get rich quick crap that's, you know, gonna make your millions because you understand what money really means. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that when you give, giving can be painful sometimes, but you also then look back at your remaining assets and you manage them more efficiently as if you had even more than you had before you gave. It's, it's, it's interesting the way all this works. Um, but I think more than anything, uh, it's keeping perspective and realizing that whenever you give, you're giving to someone who needs it more than you. And I love that because it's relative. It doesn't matter if you're a millionaire or if you're a student in college, just barely getting by. There's always someone who needs something more than you. And so therefore, you give to that person, you feel good about it, and you have perspective on what you have. Uh, and that makes a big difference. 
Yeah, I think this is a right on. I, I too disagree with this notion that you need X in the bank to begin to start giving just because of my knowledge of how habits form. I don't think it's very easy to hit a million dollars and then go, well, then I'm going to turn the faucet on. There's also this, uh, this psychological notion of the hedonic treadmill, which I, I think anyone who has come from riding a bike in college to where you are today and you know people like me who have had a, a similar trajectory you always feel it, it never feels like enough right there's no the number that you thought was going to be enough when you're 25 when you hit it when you're 45 you go well you know that that's not enough you're you're sort of on this financial treadmill where you tend to live up to your earnings right so now you don't ride a bike you have a better car and you need more money. So I feel like we need to begin those habits early, really set those in stone, realizing that we're never probably going to feel like we've arrived uh, and that giving is a habit that can be uh, baked in the cake from a, from a very early age. I think that's, I think that's right on. Uh, so as we begin to wrap up, uh, one thing I always like to do uh, is to help people be lifetime learners, like you've talked about very, uh, very succinctly here today, what is a book, besides your two books, what is a book that, that readers and listeners can take on to learn more about these types of lessons? Yeah, are you looking for any book, finance book? What, no, I love any reading. Book. Any book, like any, any book. book that changed your life awesome. or, or puts you on a good path. Yeah, I love the book Wisdom of the Ages. The author is Wayne Dyer. And it's a compilation of short essays on basically morality and the way one should live life. I love it because he takes different topics. He quotes uh, a fantastic person of historical greatness, whether it's Mother Teresa, but he doesn't just stick to one genre. He's got mathematicians and politicians and uh, all kinds of folks that he'll quote from, and then he writes a short essay on it. Mm. It's fantastic. I, I definitely recommend it. Wisdom of the Ages by Wayne Dyer. I think this is consistent with uh, looking at investing in personal finance as sort of a liberal art. You know, I think that there are lessons about uh, restraint and generosity and kindness and, and self-improvement that can be all learned with, with money as sort of the vehicle. You know, I think early on in my career, I didn't want to follow my dad, say, into this path of working in investment management because I said, ah, this is just dollars and cents. You know, I, I'm a humanist. Like, I want to learn more about the world. And, and as my understanding of this world has matured, I, I see all of this as a liberal art and, and see things like lessons from the Stoics and the great ones as uh, part and parcel of, of living a great financial life. So the other thing, the last thing I like to do is I always want to leave people with concreteness. If people have been moved by the things that you've said today, they want to begin to put their own financial house in order. What are just two or three steps that they can take today concretely to begin to make this happen? Yeah, we talked about one of them, which is saving first and automatic. But I would say, look, just go and do it. You mentioned that you only have to do it once. And I'll get more concrete. Uh, there are two ways to do that. You can either do that at your company level, yeah. walk into HR and say, hey, I know you direct deposit into this account, but I just set up this account and the account number is this. Can you have $400 a paycheck go into that account? And they'll say, yes, boom, done. The other way you can do it is through your financial you know, services company at your local bank or credit union. Walk in and say, I get paid on this day and this day. Can I have $400 the day after transferred into this account? So I wanted to get very tactical about that. Yeah. Um, and I can tell you that just by doing that first and automatic, whether that's for your emergency account, whether that's for retirement, 
Don't think too hard about it. Um, first and automatic. The next one would be, uh, it's kind of nerdy, but I'm a big fan of calculating your net worth. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, that's simply assets minus liabilities equals net worth. I love that calculation because it's real. Uh, it's honest. It's the truth. You can have an amazing house, car, technology, clothes, jewelry, whatever. And your net worth can be negative and you're screaming inside and your right. relationships are suffering because of it. But that net worth is the honest truth. Uh, it really shows you where you're at. And by focusing on it and growing it, a lot of other things are going to fall into place. A lot of people want to like count every penny, budget, not buy that latte. That's not my style. I'm a big person, keep things simple. And when I focus on my net worth and it's trending in the right direction, great. I know I'm moving in the right direction. You can only grow your net worth in two ways. You can either increase your assets. Great. That's saving and investing or decrease your liabilities. Get rid of debt. And people who really kick some tail on growing their net worth, they do both. And guess what? You have to live within your means to do that and all the other good things that we talk about. So I'm a big fan of saving first, making it automatic, calculating, and trending your net worth over time. Brian, absolutely wonderful uh, episode. If people listened, learned, and implemented the things that you talked about, uh, they'll be happier, healthier, wealthier. You've given us some great stuff today. Uh, if people want to read your books, find you online, learn more about your work, where can they find you? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn. Feel free to reach out to me uh, and uh, we can connect. I'd love to answer any of your questions. Um, I primarily work in the space of workplace financial wellness. So I, I design and deliver large scale workplace financial wellness programs for big companies like Home Depot and so forth. Um, and that website is MomentumOnUp.com. That's the program that we've created and that companies can purchase for their employees. Again, that's just MomentumOnUp.com. Okay. Thank you, Brian Ford. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. opinions expressed by Dr. Daniel Crosby and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, and its affiliates, subsidiaries, employees, and agents. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information participants consider reliable and Dr. Crosby and Guardian are not responsible for the consequences of any decisions or actions taken because of the information provided. Guardian trademark and the Guardian G trademark logo are registered service marks and are used with express permission. All materials are subject to United States copyright laws. Copyright 2018 Guardian.